After, gosh, it's been at least two decades, 25 years of practicing contemplative prayer, I don't pray in words that much anymore. But every once in a while, I just need to do it. You know, this morning, Father, I just need you. I, I need a sense of your presence. That's it. That's all it takes. You know, just short little prayer that helps to ground me. And I needed that this morning. And that prayer that you just read was, was spot on. Just perfect. We stand on your word. Rain down. Rain down. And that's what we're trying to do here. We're trying to stand on God's word. We've been going through the Sermon on the Mount for the past couple of months or so, and we probably got at least another couple of months to go because it's three chapters, and we move kind of slow at the junction. Yes, we do. Um, but everything about this is, if we're going to take the Bible literally, then we're going to have to go back and take it as literally as it was written. <laughs> Not as literally as we understand it in English. But we need to go back to the original context, the original language, the culture, the history, and understand it from that point. It changes things when we do that. But it also changes it in the direction of common sense. It changes it in the direction of always pointing to the Father's love and never allowing us to abuse someone in the name of Scripture or in the name of Jesus, which I know we've all experienced from time to time. And so what we're doing now is taking that deeper dive, taking that look. And we got to get into some history and some things, and I hope that's of interest to you. I'm a history geek, so it just comes naturally to me. And uh, it's up to me to try to make it as interesting to you as possible. But that's what we've been doing. Let's take a look at another one of the six antitheses. You know, uh, I got a call a couple of days ago. Actually, I think it was just yesterday, now that I think about it. It was a text, actually, from a young man that, that uh, I've been you know, kind of counseling and mentoring and working with, and he's in Michigan, and uh, he just got a gig as a as a teaching pastor in a in a recovery church, and so I think either this Sunday is his first sermon that he's doing, or it's one of the first. At any rate, he texted me and just said, you know, please pray for me, pray that, pray that I may be a vessel, and it reminded me of my first sermon, which I did uh, the day that I was ordained at, at the church I was ordained at. And I remember worrying over that thing for weeks, probably a couple of months. I knew that the date was coming, and I worked on it, and I worked on it, and I worked on it, and I wanted so much to deliver the perfect sermon that would change the world. <laughs> oh, silly wabbit. Now, I just hope that one of you will take one thought home tonight, today, that you can use in some way that's relevant to you. That I would be grateful for if just that much happens. It's funny how things change. You know, I think I've done this over 700 times by now in the, in the last years. So it's funny. It's not funny. It's, it's just interesting and heartwarming to see it from both sides like that, to see someone who's just starting out. And then how do you keep the same passion? How do you keep the fire lit? You know, that has been something for me to reconnect with God this morning. I just need to feel your presence. I need to know that I know again. You know, that's it. It's that reconnection that happens. And we need to keep doing that. This stuff doesn't keep on the shelf. You can't bottle it. That connection with God's moving spirit, we have to be flowing with. And so this morning, this is what we want to do. I remember hearing as I was training for the pastorate that a good sermon is going to bring comfort to the uncomfortable and discomfort to the comfortable. 
And that's true. And I think Jesus is a master at doing this. He's a master at pushing you. In fact, he doesn't worry too much about the discomfortable part. You know, my goal here is to make you uncomfortable enough that you realize that you're hearing something different, but stop just short of you picking up rocks, right? Jesus wasn't so worried about the rocks. He was just going for it. You have to admire that. When you really understand how far he pushed his first hearers in that culture, it's no wonder that he was crucified. You know, he pushed so hard, but he was trying to break through. He was trying to break through the limitations. He was trying to break through the, the, the cultural understanding, what the people thought they knew, and what they were being oppressed into obeying. To break through all that was what Jesus was trying to do. And we don't feel the discomfort when we read the Gospels the way the first hearers did. And that's our problem. We need to be able to feel the push. We need to feel him edging us. Because what happens is we read these words and we just don't get them. Culturally, we don't get them. Idiomatically, we just don't understand. And so what happens is we just put them on the shelf. We just disregard them because what we don't understand has no place to catch, right? If we understand we're being pushed, that's different. Now we have to assimilate that somehow. We can reject it if we want to, but we're going to have to deal with it. But we're not dealing with it if we're not getting pushed, if we're not getting uncomfortable, if it isn't pushing us to something beyond what we think we already know. And this is exactly what we've been trying to do with the Sermon on the Mount for these last few weeks, is to feel that push. Feel what Jesus is doing. Feel the same discomfort, the same outrage that his first hearers were feeling, so that we can also go where Jesus is trying to take them and us. We're not being moved if we're not being challenged. There is no change if there isn't that descent into the disturbance first because we don't give up what we become comfortable with easily. That's a hard fight. And the thing that we said yesterday, or last week, that I want to reiterate right now because I think we misunderstand sometimes. Jesus is not here to make us safe. Just let that sink in for a minute. Jesus is not here to make us safe. He's here to make us free. And we talked about freedom and safety, security, are inversely proportional. As one goes up, the other goes down. You can't have them both at the same time. We trade security for freedom all the time. And we're doing it more and more all the time. But to be fully free is to be fully exposed, to be fully vulnerable. The ultimate goal of all of Jesus' teaching, the ultimate goal of living in kingdom, is to be completely free, which is to be completely vulnerable. Because without vulnerability, we can't be connected. Without being connected, we can't be in love. It just doesn't work. We need to be able to drop the shields and to cling on to the security that we cling to whether they're legal walls or cultural walls or whatever that we've concocted in our own minds and hearts, is ironically to remain insecure, to remain in fear. Whereas when we finally let them go, we open up into a bigger space. doesn't mean we're not going to get hurt. Jesus is not here to make us safe. In fact, you will get hurt. If you open yourself up to the vulnerability of love, you are guaranteed heartbreak. But what other way is there to live? 
To live with your heart protected is to live in isolation and never experience the things that Jesus is trying to get us to experience. This amazing love that we can't even get our heads around, but we can get our hearts around if we're willing to go this distance with him. So Jesus is trying to deconstruct our walls. He's trying to pull out our security blankets. Remember Linus? Try to get that security blanket from him. That's how we are. We're hanging on for dear life. But he's doing everything that he can to encourage us to throw these things down, to let them go, because there's something completely different that we can experience once we do. So here he goes again. In the middle of Matthew 5, we've talked about the six antitheses. This is where he's redefining the law. And he takes six issues that were central to daily life in the people that he was talking to. Had to do with murder, had to do with adultery, had to do with divorce and remarriage, had to do with oaths. It's what we, taking vows and taking oaths, which is what we talked about last week. And so this week, he's going to talk about retribution, which in his day was retaliation. There's a difference between retribution and retaliation. Did you know that? Retaliation is doing to the other out of anger and revenge what they did to you. Okay? It is to return with the same aggression, the same personal attack as was perpetrated on you. Retribution is a higher authority that tries to institute a proportional punishment to a crime. All right? Difference. We talked about in an honor-shame society, retaliation was the theme. But what Jesus is talking about here is retribution. So look how he introduces that at Matthew 5, starting at verse 38. You've heard that it was said, and this is the formula that we've talked about that he's using for all of these. He's going to give the, the old idea. He's going to give either the written law or the cultural oral tradition that the people are operating under. You've heard it of old said, but I'm going to tell you, and then he's going to take that, and he's going to take it from micro from macro to micro, from legal to relational. He's going to take it from external to a heart issue. He's going to take it and bring it in because kingdom is always working from the inside out. So this is his formula for each one of these six. So if you heard it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. All right? So that's the, the law of retribution that was in place at this time in the Middle East. But I say to you, do not resist an evil person. Is your head already spinning a little bit? Do not resist an evil person. But whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. If anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, let him have your coat also. Whoever forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks of you, and do not turn away from him who wants to borrow from you. So we hear these four illustrations, and they kind of roll off the tongue, and they kind of roll through our head. But what do they really mean? Are they grabbing us? Are they disturbing us? Are they outraging us? Are they pointing us towards some kind of change in our lives? Now, what he's talking about here is called the lex talionis, which is Latin for the law of retribution. And we just talked about the difference between retribution and retaliation. Retaliation, as we just defined it, that personal re-attack, that aggression upon aggression, is what the lex talionis was trying to eradicate. Now, it sounds harsh, doesn't it? An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. It doesn't sound like anything that we as Christians would want to be practicing. It doesn't sound like it's a very loving thing to do. But actually, at that time, 
It was merciful. It was actually more merciful than what was going on. Remember we talked about the law, is all it's trying to do is resolve conflict with the least amount of damage done to the group. That's what law is all about. And so that's what this law is all about. It's trying to resolve conflict. Now in the absence of law enforcement, because in the ancient Middle East there weren't any police, you couldn't call 911. There was no fire. There was none of this. So it was kind of like the law, you know, the Wild West, you know, where everybody was kind of a law to themselves and the, the biggest aggressors got the most share of things and who's going to stop them? All right. What stopped them in that culture was the honor and shame society. Now what the honor and shame society does is to try to resolve conflicts by balancing honor and shame. The restoration of honor after you have been shamed, after you've been perpetrated against. In other words, honor and shame societies maintain order through basically mutually assured destruction. <laughs> if you want to look at it that way. You kill one of mine, I'm going to kill one of yours. And then when you, I've killed one of yours and you're going to have to kill one of mine. And these escalated into blood feuds that would wipe out whole families, whole clans. And so this is not good for society. So basically, around 1800 BCE, okay, this is three to 400 years before Moses is on the scene and, and the law is put down for the Israelites. This Lex Talionis was inscribed on the code of Hammurabi, the, the stele that was discovered 100 and some years ago. An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. So what it's doing, it's making the punishment proportional to the crime. It can't just escalate and keep going on forever. And most importantly, it takes the retaliation out of the hands of the people themselves and it elevates it to the state, to the courts, where cooler heads can hopefully prevail. And there's a standard now that has to be applied. And so this is what's going on here in this lex talionis. We hear it as something that sounds barbaric. But in their time, it was something that was much more merciful and limited the damage as it resolved conflict. Now, should this be taken literally? Was it even taken literally 3,000 years ago is the question we need to ask. See, there are problems here with this. It's easy to say an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But what happens if a blind man puts out your eye? What are you going to take from him that's going to be of any kind of equal you know, proportion, right? What if someone just partially blinds you? How are you going to partially blind them in exactly the same way? What if they just wound you? How do you wound them to the exact same proportion? And what happens if you go a little bit too far and wound them more? Do they get to wound you back now? See, there, there are actual practical problems with how, how you, would, uh, you would administer this. And, you know, that sounds kind of silly, but it's actually true that what they did was these woundings, these perpetrations on each other were usually not done literally. What they would do is they would exact a fine. Well, how would they know what the fine should be? If someone puts out your eye, how do you know what to pay? Well, they would put you on the block as if you were a slave being sold at market. And what would your value be with two eyes and good sight? And what would your value be with one eye? And then they would have to pay the difference of that. And typically that's the way that these things were handled. So everything stayed proportional and everybody wasn't going blind. But there was a way for, to get redress. There was a way to get amends made and reparations paid and the courts decided these things. Now, the injured party could refuse the payment and say, no, 
I want his eye out. They could do that if they wanted to, but then they don't get paid anything either. So does that really help them? Is that in their best interest? And when it came to killing, if you killed somebody, then all bets were off. The lex talionis in this way did not work. You know, a life for a life had to be taken. But there was, there was a modification of that as well. The law puts in, the, the law of Moses puts in six sanctuary cities, they were called. And they were spaced so that you could get to them as quickly as possible wherever you were in the land of Israel among the tribes. And so if you killed someone, you could run to one of those cities. And as long as you got there before the family got you, then you were safe in that city and they couldn't touch you. That doesn't mean you could just live there forever. It meant that you were safe until an actual trial could be held. And if you were found guilty, then you were taken out and stoned with the witnesses stoning you first, right? But if you were found innocent, then you could resume your life or you would make the reparations in some way. And so this was the system that was going on at this time. The Lex Talionis wasn't taken literally, but it was the foundation for actually a more humane way of actually dealing with these difficulties that just occur in human life. Now, by Jesus' time, the law had been twisted again. The Pharisees were masters at creating laws upon laws upon laws and then creating loopholes and fig leaves on those laws to be able to still do what they wanted to be able to do. Now, by the time Jesus gets on the scene, this law had been twisted so that now the law itself had become an excuse for revenge, an excuse for the retaliation, but now it's done through the auspices of the state. There was a line from the Talmud that says, that if someone has injured you, you are commanded to keep the serpent in your heart until they repay you, until they are forgiven. But you're supposed to keep the serpent in your heart, which means you keep your hatred hot for them. You do not forgive them. You hold them to account until every last penny is paid or whatever needs to be taken out through the law. So now the law is being used not only as a means for revenge, a means for retaliation, but also a means to keep the hatred alive. Now Jesus is going to address this. Of course Jesus is going to address this because it is flying in the face of what the law was supposed to do, which was allow a way for people to get back into relationship, right? To get back into forgiveness and reconciliation. So the rabbis were twisting this back to fanning hatred. Jesus is going to be trying to bring it back to original intent. And then he's going to take it back beyond just original intent to moving beyond preserving relationships, beyond two preserving relationships, not just following law, not just following rules, but what can we do to actually preserve relationships? And so his first shot across the bow to us all is do not resist an evil person. I'm going to tell you, do not res resist an evil person. Really? Does that sound right to you? <laughs> Are we supposed to take that literally? You know, the Quakers did. Those good old Quakers. You know, they took his, his saying on oaths, literally, so they wouldn't take an oath. They wouldn't testify in court. They wouldn't serve military service because they wouldn't take an oath. And they took this literally. So they are famous for their pacifism, you know. They won't kill. They won't resist an evil person, even in self-defense. Yet let's take a look at Romans 12.9 and James 4.7. Romans 12.9, let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil. Cling to what is good. 
So abhor what is evil. Another way of saying resist what is evil, right? James 4, 7, submit therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. So to resist or not to resist? That is the question, right? Now resist here is an accurate translation, but it's not the best translation. It's not the best way that we can take a look at this. If you take a look at the actual Aramaic that is, stands behind the Greek in this passage, there's actually two words there in Aramaic. And when you translate them, what you get is, do not rise up against an evil person, rather than simply resist an evil person. Do not rise up against. Now that gives us a different sort of idea of what's going on here, right? This would be retaliation. This would be re-aggression for any aggression that has been shown you. And remember, evil is bisha. And we're going to talk about that in a second. Bisha meaning unripe. So do not rise up against an unripe person. Now, this doesn't mean that we don't resist at all. That we don't defend ourselves against any real threat. He's not saying that. He's saying don't rise to an equal level of aggression In other words, don't do tit for tat. Don't go into retaliation. Don't go into revenge. Don't let yourself go into that blind hatred that was so characteristic of these blood feuds in the honor-shame society. Ambisha, unripe. Do we get angry at people who are not developmentally able to do the things that we think they should be able to do? Do you get mad at a a year-and-a-half-year-old because they can't use the toilet yet? Do you get mad at a Down syndrome person because they can't do what you can do? We understand that developmentally they're not there. What did Jesus say from the cross? Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And look at what they were doing at the moment. But he was in a place where he could see that and he could see their level of development and he could see that there is nothing else that they could do but this because of where they were in their lives. Hopefully they're not going to stay there, but this is where they are right now. Jesus is taking this and turning this into a different place. Not only don't rise up against, don't return evil for evil, but find a way to be able to get into the aggressor's head, understand them. But this doesn't mean that you don't defend yourself and defend others from an active aggression. Of course we need to do that. Jesus did that. If anything, what was his violence in the temple when he overturned the money changers, right? He was protecting them from the oppression of the system of his day. The people just couldn't go into the temple and worship without being afflicted with all of this stuff. Now, the Hebrew context for the meaning of what Jesus is talking about is all over the Bible. It's right there, right in our faces. Take a look at Proverbs 20, 22. Do not say, I will repay evil. Wait for the Lord, and he will save you. Proverbs 25, 21 and 22. If your enemy is hungry, give him food to eat. And if he is thirsty, give him water to drink. For you will heap burning coals on his head, and the Lord will reward you. Okay, heap burning coals on his head. That doesn't sound very good either now, does it? You know? But that's another Hebrew idiom. You know, an idiom is a phrase that you can't define by the meaning of the words in the phrase. It's just an agreed-upon meaning, like it's raining cats and dogs, right? Someone digs that up in 2,000 years, they're going to say, man, back in the 20s, you know, 
animals, quadrupeds, actually fell from the sky. It's funny when you hear Bible expositors kind of doing the same thing, taking things literally and trying to rationalize them. It's an idiomatic phrase. What it means is, is that if someone is doing evil to you and you give them kindness, they're going to burn with shame because of the contrast of what you're doing for them. In other words, they're going to see how their aggression is so out of place in the face of someone's kindness, unless they're sociopaths, you know? But here's the idea, is that you can kill your enemies by turning them into friends. There's a whole idea here with heaping burning coals on their head. First Thessalonians, going to Paul, 5.15. See that no one repays another with evil for evil, but always seek after that which is good for one another and for all people. First Peter 3, 8 and 9. To sum up, all of you be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, and humble in spirit, not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead. For you were called for the very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. And finally, Romans 12.21. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And I suppose that sums up the whole idea here. Overcome evil with good. The sum of the biblical thought on this idea here. This is what Jesus is saying too. And now he's going to give us four illustrations of how this actually works, right? So the first one, if someone slaps you on your right cheek, offer him, them your left as well. Okay, how many of you would really be present of mind to be able to do that if someone actually slaps you? You're just going to give them the other one to slap as well? Does that seem good to you? Well, here we have to get back into the the culture a little bit. If someone slaps you on your right cheek in that culture, in that culture, the left hand was the dirty hand. The left hand you didn't do anything with. Everything you did with your right hand, you ate with your right hand. You did everything else with the right hand. That was the holy hand, the good hand. Even when you were eating, you reclined at table. You didn't sit down, but you reclined on your left side. And so your left hand was underneath you and immobile. And everything you ate, it all had to be finger food, right? And dipping food all with your right hand. So if you're going to slap someone with your right hand on the right cheek, you can do the math in your head. It's got to be a backhand slap. That's the only way that it's going to work. A backhand slap is a slap from a superior to a subordinate. It would be from a parent to a child. It would be from a master to a slave. In that culture, it would be from a husband to a wife. And so it's a condescending slap. It's a slap of derision, the backhand slap. Now, figuratively, this goes beyond just a physical slap. Figuratively, this would be that consummate, condescending insult that is given you. Right? Jesus isn't just talking about a physical slap here. Jesus is a poet. We've said that over and over again. He's going to use metaphor. He's going to use figurative speech to try to get across what he's trying to get across. And this is where it becomes even more important. Remember the first antithesis. You think you're safe because you haven't murdered anybody, but I'm going to tell you that even if you have an angry thought, you're already guilty before the court. And if you say, you good for nothing, then you're guilty before the Supreme Court. And if you say, you fool, then you're guilty in the fiery Gehenna. This is kind of the flip side of that. They're already guilty as, long as, as soon as they're angry with you. But as soon as they say that first backhand slap, right, that first insult to you verbally, you have a choice to make. 
You can retaliate tit for tat and call him the next thing that's going to guarantee physical violence. Or you can do what Jesus is suggesting here. De-escalate. Start to bring it down. Diffuse the, the explosive situation. Don't engage. Now, is this uncomfortable? You bet. Is this outrageous? especially in that culture, you bet. But how much less outrageous is it in ours when you have really been dissed, when you have really been insulted? What do we naturally do? Well, we're going to fight back. How many of you would have the ability to just stop, take the breath, and give a blessing, as Peter suggests? Well, maybe not that far, but not to engage, to let it pass, to de-escalate, to heap burning coals on the head of the other who acted that rashly, and you don't respond? What would that do to restoring relationship? Go with the right person, it can do a lot. With the wrong person, at least you involved a lawsuit, right? But this is what Jesus is trying to get us across. Go beyond just the letter of the law. Go beyond your own personal rights. And find a way to be able to reconcile. And he talks about the shirt and the coat. If someone sues you for your shirt, your tunic, your inner, your inner garment, give them your outer as well. Now, in Jewish culture, there's really only two pieces of clothing that the people wore. And there was that inner tunic, that, that inner shirt. And it was like a t-shirt. It went to, went to the knees. It could be long sleeve or short sleeve. And over that was probably just loincloth, you know, that's about it. And then over that, there was what was called the mantle. And this was a nearly square piece of heavier garment that was simply wrapped around the body. And then it was tied with a girdle, tied with a, a sash or a belt that kind of doubled as a fanny pack of sorts. You know, it was somewhere you could put your, your money, your belongings. It was a scabbard for your your sword or your knife. It was kind of an all-purpose utility belt, but that held everything in place. So listen to what Jesus is saying here. If someone sues you for your inner tunic, right, give them your outer as well. You're basically standing there naked at this point, which in that culture was, of course, completely outrageous. You didn't show skin in public in Hebrew culture, not men and certainly not women. But Jesus is being humorous here. He's using hyperbole. He's bringing a, a, a word picture to mind that's going to blow their heads off, right? And, but he's trying to do this again for that, that, that purpose. Are you uncomfortable now? Do you get what I'm saying now? Do you hear something different than you think that you're hearing? Are you outraged? Can you go beyond the letter of the law? to restore and maintain personal relationships, to keep a purity of your own heart, to not take things always to the legal leather of the law, because you can, but let it go. Find a way to resolve it. It's not literal, but you get the point that he's making. The third one, if someone compels you to go one mile, go with him too. Now, we don't get this one at all, but in ancient culture, these, this Middle Eastern culture, starting with the Persians and then moving to the Romans, they had a network of roads. And, of course, you didn't have, you didn't have telephone. You didn't have any way of getting messages across. So they had heralds that would run the message from the king to the distant parts of the kingdom. And they would do it kind of like in a relay race where a herald would run a certain distance and then hand it off. But they could compel anyone along the way to give them a ride or to help them 
in order to get that message across. The Romans used it for their soldiers. If the soldiers were moving from one place to another, they could compel, they could commandeer vehicles, they could commandeer boats and horses and animals to carry their packs and to help them for a specified certain distance only. And when that distance was up, then you were free again to make your own choices. Now, the Romans, you have to understand how hated they were. They were the occupiers. They were the aggressors, the oppressors. They exacted these enormous taxes on the people. And they kept them from being the sovereign nation that was promised to Abraham. And here, they are impressing, commandeering these people to take them where they need to go and to carry their packs And the moment that they are free of that obligation, Jesus says, don't just go one mile, go another mile. Don't just go that specified distance, go beyond that first. Is that uncomfortable? Is that outrageous? Of course it is. To be able to find a place in your heart to give more than what is required to that evil one, to that aggressor, to that oppressor. It's hard to underscore enough the imagery that Jesus is employing here. And the last one, give to him who asks. Always? (laughs) Under any circumstances, no matter what? Is that really what we're supposed to do? Without any sort of discernment, are we supposed to just keep giving to anybody who asks and wants to borrow from us? Has Jesus not heard of codependency? Has Jesus not heard of enabling? At at, uh, 2 Thessalonians uh, 3.10, that whole passage, Paul is talking about how they conducted themselves as they went into any area, that they never just, you know, um, mooched off the people. They never wanted to be a burden to the people. They came in and did whatever work they needed to do. And he says, this is the way that we were with you. He says, be that way with each other. You know, don't, don't just let people keep giving to you. Do the work that is necessary. And at 3.10, 2 Thess 3.10, he says, he who will not work will not eat. So how is it that we're supposed to also just keep giving to people who ask without any sort of discernment? Jesus doesn't qualify this in any way. Now we need to get in a little bit to Hebrew poetry. Jesus is a poet, right? Hebrew poetry doesn't look like English poetry because it doesn't repeat sounds at the end of a line that we call rhyme or sounds at the beginning of a line that we call alliteration or sounds at the middle of a line that we call assonance. You know, And it doesn't have regular meter and, and, and form. It looks like prose to us. But what it does, it does repeat is concepts, ideas, and it repeats them in ways that enrich and deepen the understanding of that concept. And so when Jesus says here, give to him who asks of you and do not turn away from him who wants to borrow from you, you have two thoughts in parallel there. It's a poetic expression. And there are two different words that are used for each one of those two. And it's interesting and probably important for us to understand them a little bit. When he says, ask, the word he's using there is sha'al. And that is to borrow an object that you're going to return. If I borrow a book, if I ask you for a book and I get to borrow it, and then I bring it back to you. If I ask to borrow your lawnmower, I use it and then I bring it back to you. 
right? The second one, to borrow, is zaf. means to lend a consumable that's only going to be able to be returned in kind. Can I borrow a cup of flour? Well, I'm not going to give you that cup of flour back. It be gone. But I can bring you another cup of flour. Money, food is like this. And so it's two different ideas. Something that you're going to give that will be simply returned. In other words, you're just going to share it, right? And something that you're going to give that's going to be consumed, but they're going to bring it back to you in kind or something of equal value. But the point is that it is going to be returned, that you're working together as a community here. And what Jesus is saying is have a generous spirit, have a generous heart. Allow your possessions to flow through you to others who are in need so that when they have possessions, they can flow to you and everybody's boat gets floated higher. This is how good neighbors can be good neighbors and live well together in relationship. This is what Jesus is talking about. Of course he knows that there are limits. And if someone is not reciprocating, if someone is not being a good neighbor, you can't keep pouring your resources down that hole But this is the concept. This is where he's trying to take the people. God's spirit is always in motion. Ruach means wind and breath and spirit all at the same time. The common thread being motion. There is no breath if it's not in motion. There is no wind if there's not a motion to it. And there's no spirit if there's no motion. That was the idea behind one word carrying all that weight. We know that we are present to God's spirit when we are in motion not when we're static. Why do you live for the living among the dead? The dead don't move. You're not going to find Jesus there. You're not going to find God there. You're going to find God among the living, among the motion and the moving and the ever-changing cycles of diversity and change. That's where spirit is. And if your possessions are all dammed up and you're holding them in a miserly position, then you are dead and you're in the cemetery and nobody is there. This is what he's trying to get across. Everything flows through. And if we understand the abundance at the heart of kingdom, the abundance at the heart of God's love, then we don't have to worry if there's going to be more for us if we let this go here. Because we're just vessels. We're just conduits. We're just delivery devices for God's grace and God's provision. And if we see it that way, it just tends to work that way. It's amazing how that happens. That if you continue to give, it seems like there's always enough. You're not going to feel secure with all those zeros in your bank account, but there always seems to be enough at the moment. It just seems to be there for you as you let it go through. Each of these four illustrations point toward letting go of legal and defensive walls, letting go of the security and the safety that we all crave, We're letting go of righteous anger with the first one. We're letting go of our legal rights with the second one. We're letting go of political victimization in the third one. Something for our times, political victimization. Doesn't anybody, everybody feel a little victimized right now politically? Can we let that go? Can we be gracious with that? And letting go of personal possessions. Think about that. Righteous anger, legal rights, political victimization, and personal possessions. Can we drop our shields? This is what Jesus is asking us to do. Can we embrace our own vulnerability? Can we give up our sense of security, the things that we've been clinging to for our sense of security, in exchange for the freedom 
of real connection. Jesus is not here to make us safe. Jesus is here to make us free, free to love and free to live in kingdom. And here's the thing to take away, if there's one thing that you take away from this message. There is no freedom in the first mile. There's no freedom there. You're just obeying the law. You're just following rules. You're just complying with the power structure as it is. There's no freedom in the first mile. Everything of real value happens in the second mile. When we become free to choose, what do we do then? Do we choose to continue to cling to the law, to our defensive walls that ultimately limit us and imprison us? Or do we do the unthinkable, to love beyond the law? Can we do that? It's all about the second mile. This is what Jesus is trying to get us to understand. The second mile, when we are free to choose, our choices tell us who we are even if nobody's looking. Let's pray. Father, thank you even for the disturbance. Thank you for rocking our world to show us yours, to show us the limits of our own thought systems, our belief systems, the things that we cling to, that we think are life and security and survival. Thank you for exposing those things so that we can look beyond them and see another there there, a place where we really can be in connection with you and each other. So, Father, I know everyone says to be careful what you pray for, but we pray for continued disturbance and discomfiture and even outrage, if it is in the service of being able to see beyond our own limitations and see a there there that contains you in deeper measure. So we give you permission to keep drawing us to that place. And thank you, Lord, for that constant contact, that constant attention. Never let us forget that we can only love because you loved us first. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. All right, let's stand.